Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We're happy to announce that Santoya Brown has been granted clemency. Earlier, we reported that though she shot a man in self-defense at the age of 16, she was tried as an adult and was sentenced to serve at least 51 years in prison before her release. On January 7th, Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam granted Brown full clemency after she served over 14 years in prison. The grassroots support network that arose around Brown's case was instrumental in obtaining her freedom. Black Lives Matter Nashville, the Highlander Center for Research and Education, the Me Too movement, and many people placed phone calls, wrote letters, and publicized Brown's story. And their efforts have paid off. In a statement after this announcement, Brown wrote, quote, Thank you, Governor Haslam, for your act of mercy in giving me a second chance. I will do everything I can to justify your faith in me. I want to thank those at the Tennessee Department of Corrections who saw something in me worth salvaging, especially Ms. Connie Seabrooks, for allowing me to participate in the Lipscomb Life Program. It changed my life. I am also grateful to those at the Tennessee Department of Corrections who will work with me over the next several months to help me in the transition from prison to the free world. Thank you to Dr. Richard Good and Dr. Kate Watkins and all of you at Lipscomb University for opening up a whole new world for me. I have one course left to finish my bachelor's degree, which I will complete in May 2019. I am thankful for all the support, prayers, and encouragement I've received. We truly serve a God of second chances and new beginnings. The Lord has held my hand this whole time, and I would never have made it without him. Let today be a testament to his saving grace. Thank you to my family for being a backbone these past 14 years. I am thankful to my lawyers and their staffs and all the others who, for the last decade, have freely given of their time and expertise to help me get to this day. I love all of you and will be forever grateful. With God's help, I am committed to living the rest of my life helping others, especially young people. My hope is to help other young girls avoid ending up where I have been. Thank you." Unquote. As Color of Change says, quote, Centoya should never have been put in a cage for daring to survive in the first place. Unquote. She's still having to pay a price for the freedom by facing 10 years of supervision upon her release. On January 7th, according to News 4JX, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to consider a First Amendment case in which a magazine for prisoners, Prison Legal News, had been prevented from distribution to Florida prisoners. As usual, the court gave no reasons for refusing to hear the appeal. The Florida Department of Corrections has been blocking distribution of this magazine because prison officials say advertisements in it pose security risks. For example, the department mentioned ads for three-way calling services, which officials claim can facilitate crimes. A U.S. District Judge and 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals took the side of the department. Attorneys for Prison Legal News had argued that the Department of Corrections was engaging in censorship, which violated free speech and free press rights. In its appeal, Prison Legal News received support and briefs from a wide range of organizations, from media and religious groups to Americans for Prosperity and the Cato Institute. In Bamberg, Germany, a riot in an immigrant detention center caused damage estimated at about 100,000 euros. Security service personnel who were exposed to disturbances were attacked by residents of the center. As a result, the situation escalated. Several men barricaded themselves in the facility. 
the first incoming police were pelted with paving stones. There was a fire set after that. Only a few weeks ago, a major fire happened in one of the buildings of the site, at times during which the entire roof of a dormitory was burning. None of the 150 residents of the house were injured, police said. The employees of the security service were able to escape outside in good time. The damage was about 2 million euros. This week on KiteLine, we hear two stories about electronic monitoring. Since the Ferguson uprising in 2014, the Black Lives Matter movement has shown a light on the range of American institutions, revealing their white supremacist origins and functions. In addition to police and the discriminatory mortgage market, cash bail is one of the most important of these institutions to be revealed and resisted. Community bail funds and others have begun organizing against a cash bail system that definitionally targets the poor and exacts an especially high cost on communities of color. Jails and legal systems across the country have begun conceding defeat on this issue in the face of fierce protest, large-scale bail fundraising, and considerable moral outrage, leading to the end of cash bail in many jurisdictions. Indiana, for example, will end cash bail by 2020. The danger now, though, is that cash bail will be replaced with measures just as bad. The risk assessment algorithms used to determine who may be released pretrial and who must wait in jail threaten to reproduce all the racism and class bias of money bail. Equally worrisome is electronic monitoring, in which people will be released from jails but subjected to a new, more intimate kind of surveillance via ankle shackles that they must wear everywhere. These devices can be painful, stigmatizing, and restrictive. They're also difficult to maintain and still require intense human oversight. Despite the fact that there is no evidence they make a person more likely to show up to trial, their use is expanding enormously. First, on this week's KiteLine, we hear from Emmett Sanders about his experience. Then, James Kilgore speaks with J. John Di Harrell, an organizer against electronic monitoring in Philadelphia, who explains this danger and the risk that electronic monitoring will actually expand the incarceration of millions. My name is Emmett Sanders. I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm also the project researcher for Challenging Incarceration, which is a project of the Center for Media Justice that aims at reducing the harm done by, by uh, electronic monitoring. Challenging Incarceration is actually led by James Kilgore. Uh, he's also a formerly incarcerated person. And when I first met James, I was actually on an electronic monitor myself after spending more than 22 years in prison. And I, while, while you're there, of course, while you're incarcerated, your whole focus is on getting out and under any conditions, you know, you would accept any conditions. You, you don't think that electronic monitoring will be an issue, but then when you do come out, you find that it very much is an issue. You find that it, it's nothing but an extension of incarceration. So I started getting involved in the study and research of electronic monitoring and writing about it, working with James, also as a result of just experiencing it myself uh, and, and understanding what it really means. When, when I first, when I got married, I got married shortly after I got out, and I did so with electronic monitor strapped to my ankle. I had to walk into the courtroom, <laughs> I had to walk into the courthouse, and lift up my pant leg and show a bailiff um, this device on my wedding day. <laughs> um, and, and you know, these are just some of the little indignities that, that I suffered, but there are other like major things that people suffer. You know, in um, talking with people. In the course of this research, we talked to people and have interviewed people, and there seems to be always like a, a moment of, of crisis when people have to make a decision, uh, what would lead them to break the rules? For what reason would they have to decide to just leave, for example, and, and, and violate the terms of electronic monitoring? Um, there was one man who whose mother was ill, 
his mother was ill and had to, and had to be rushed to the hospital, and he had to decide whether he would go there with his mother or whether and, and possibly violate his electronic monitoring or whether he would sit at home. We see this all the time, you know, these, these pretty stringent conditions and these horrible things. And and I feel that, that as someone who's experienced it and as someone who you know, really cares about the subject, the, the best thing that I can do is, is try to reduce the harm that's done by it. And so that's why I do uh, a lot of the research and, and a lot of the writing. Placing the prison in the home. It's placing someone in prison in their home, um, and so the place be- becomes a, pl- uh, a center of, you know, site of incarceration. Or someone who calls it a satellite prison, and I think that's really, really uh, astute observation. Doing this, it's not just the person that's on the monitor that's in the satellite prison; it's also their families. So the burden that's created, the financial burden, for example, that's created is not just on the person who's on this monitor, but on their families as well. The person that's on the monitor might not be able to, to do basic things like, like care for the child, <laughs> to take the child to school. They can't take the child to school. They might not be able to take out the garbage. They might not be able to, to rush their family to the hospital if, if they need to go to the hospital. So like, there's, a, there's a huge burden that's created on the family as well as the person that's... Uh, you know, on incarceration. And I think that's something that, that we really need to think about, the fact that we're not just incarcerating people here. Uh, the individual that um, is on this, in this on this shackle, we're incarcerating their families as well. Across the country, there was something like 200,000 people <laughs> on electronic monitor. Like, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and when we look at some of the fees associated with it, we find that people can be charged from 5 to $35 a day to be on the monitor. And understand that, that a lot of people that are being charged are also coming from really impoverished areas. And so these are, these are fees that people can't rightly afford to pay. Um, there are some places where coming out of prison and being placed on electronic monitoring, you're required to pay uh, for that process, but you also have to, you're also required to have a job within two weeks of coming out of prison and having an electronic monitor on your ankle which in some cases makes it very, very difficult to get a job. They're requiring people to have a job, but preventing them from having a job and requiring them to pay for this monitor, which may be as much as a month's rent. Um, and it's, I think that's pretty extreme. I think when we also look at the fact that, and there are some, there are some cases where people are required to wear a monitor for life. And, Along with his lifetime monitoring are lifetime fees. There are lifetime fees to be on this monitor. So essentially, someone is someone is being charged for the for the entire span of their life without end. And so, there's no real ceiling to to how much they'll have to pay. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think I think just the fees are pretty extreme. I mean, we can look at the case of juveniles, for example, who, whose parents. We'll have to foot the bill, right? So there's a kid who's not even not even um, 16, 17 years old yet, and yet has accrued, you know, all kinds of charges because of this thing strapped to his ankle. Either on his parents to pay, or you know, will be on him eventually. So when we just talk about the cost of it, the financial cost associated with electronic monitoring, we find that it's pretty it's pretty extreme. 
Uh, challenging the incarceration has actually come out with uh, a list of guidelines, um, some things that we we would really hope would, would happen. Um, among them are regulation of data, for example. The, uh, some of these devices, uh, over 70% of the devices are, have GPS monitoring, which monitor a person's every move, and the data is stored somewhere. In some cases, it's stored for up to seven years, and we don't know what happens to it. Um, and so a lot of bi- and biometric data is stored as well. And, and so there really needs to be some kind of regulations about uh, what happens there with that data. One of the things we do with this uh, work is that we're not just looking at what's happening now, but what might actually occur in the future. Um, so we want to halt the net widening. Like, you know, electronic monitoring has been around for 30 years or so. It, it, the technology is old, but more and more people are being placed on this every year. One of the big areas now, for example, is immigration. Um, you see people who have not been convicted of anything being placed on electronic monitoring, including, in some cases, children. Companies are always looking for more and more avenues of revenue. You know, people are being commodified for this. We want to halt the net widening there. We also want to look ahead to, to things that might happen, such as like chip um, implantation. Might you know, it's not it's not that big of a leap if we look at it, right? I mean, they do it they do it with animals right now. There there are chips in animals that that. Um, that transmit their data, that you can actually read their data in, in a chip. There was a company, uh, I forget the name of the company, but there was a company um, which offered its employees, it was optional, but they offered their, to allow their employees to be implanted with a chip that would allow them to access uh, keyless entry to doors and, and computers and things like this. So like, the technology is actually out there, and, and it may sound like Orwellian almost, but in truth, it's 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 not really that far-fetched. And so... One of the things that we want to do is make sure that we we uh, we address the possible issues and things that might arise in the future. So the reason why electronic monitoring has become you know such an important thing, especially right now, I think this is a critical moment because we're involved in this process of decarceration. There are a lot of movements to decarcerate. There's a lot of talk about uh, criminal justice reform and reducing the prison population because, you know, finally people have acknowledged the fact that the United States incarcerates at, at a rate that's just so far beyond any other country. And so the move to decarcerate is really gaining momentum. The problem with this is that electronic monitoring is being presented as a, as a solution to this, as a solution to the, the problem of mass incarceration and over-incarceration. It's being presented as an alternative to incarceration. But if we really look at it, what it is, is it's an extension of the prison industrial complex. It's not an alternative to, it's an alternate form of incarceration. When we think about prison and electronic monitoring, what we're generally looking at is a binary, right? It's being presented as here is the alternative here. It's either prison or it's electronic monitoring. Um, but it's a false binary. It's one that, that we create because we lack the imagination, we lack the, the incentive to really think of alternate forms, uh, alternatives to incarceration, true alternatives to incarceration. We're so trapped in this, we're so trapped in this mentality of incarceration that what we think of is just different ways to incarcerate. Um, when really we need to be thinking about solutions. We need to think about really in 
de-investing in the, in, in the prison system and de-investing electronic monitoring and reinvesting uh, some of this money and some of these resources in the community. <laughs> it's it's no surprise to anyone that you know, prison is, is filled with, with people of color. Um, and, and the same holds true for electronic monitoring. Um, in a lot of cases, uh, these people who come from, you know, communities that, that are experiencing poverty, they're experiencing a, a complete lack of resources. Um, for in the school system, for example, or in uh, mental health treatment, if you look at prison, the mental health problem in prison is, is just extreme. People have been, instead of receiving treatment that might help someone, they send them to prison. They're sent to prison <laughs> um, where they're just housed and receive, they don't receive adequate treatment. So if we have preventative measures such as providing mental health care facilities in the community, mental health treatment in the community or job resources, employment resources in the community before incarceration even comes comes into the picture, uh, I think it would be a much better allocation of, of resources. We're sort of trying to focus on removing electronic monitoring as a condition of parole. That's something we're really trying to focus on now. Uh, it's it's all electronic monitoring does for people on parole is provides one more obstacle. And we find that in, in Illinois, for example, that people who come out of prison, um, in large part, a lot of people who come out of prison are on electronic monitoring, particularly at the beginning of, of their, their release. And we know that the beginning of those first 60 or 90 days are the most important uh, first coming out of prison in order for someone to sort of establish themselves and sort of uh, reconstruct or in some cases construct a life outside of prison. The monitor is a huge impediment to that. It it, it can interfere. Um, for example, I mean, in my case, when I came out, I would apply for jobs and would get a call back because there are some jobs you need two or three interviews to get and might not be able to get a hold of my parole agent, might not be able to get movement and would just lose the job before I ever before I ever got it simply because I had this thing strapped to my ankle and when I would get a job <laughs> I would have a certain amount of time to get from that job to my home if I'm taking public transportation in Chicago for example where trains can be late you have a certain amount of time to get home if you don't you actually risk being reincarcerated you risk violating your, the terms of your, of your uh, release so we really want to focus on on trying to get that removed as condition of parole uh, moving forward, trying to connect with legislators interested in, in, in uh, making this happen, who are interested at least, at the very least, in hearing people out, uh, which I think is very important. And, and I think it also involves gathering people who think critically about the subject of electronic monitoring and think about how how it might impact someone's success on upon a release. And it definitely involves, first and foremost, I think it involves uh, connecting with people who've experienced this. Those who are close to the problem are close to the solution. Those of us who have actually experienced this, people who have been critically impacted, both by the criminal justice system and by electronic monitoring in particular, really need to be at the forefront and you know, taking the lead with this and putting our stories out there and letting people understand what this really means. Um, it's, a, it's a very innocuous term, right? uh, electronic monitoring. It seems very um, almost humanistic, but if we really think about what it means, it's it's the complete opposite of that. It's it's 
it's a complete denial of, of a person's basic rights and humanity. Up next, we have a conversation between James Kilgore and Jay Jondi Harrell as part of their challenging e-carceration archives. I'm with Jondi here talking about um, electronic monitoring and his experience and his ideas about electronic monitoring, which I think are pretty interesting. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience of electronic monitoring or non-experience, sure. as the case may be? So I view electronic monitoring as a uh, a sign of the old slave shackle um, syndrome. Um, it's the ability of the authorities to be able to track you, track you wherever you go. I liken it to uh, back in the plantation times where your master had to write a pass and then you had to uh, show your pass when you are out in society. When you're wearing the electronic surveillance, they can track you around the city and they can see everything you're doing and it's and where you're going. And I saw that as a throwback to slavery times. And when I came home, I was in a halfway house. Um, Philadelphia has a unique halfway house system where they actually, when you first go into the halfway house, their main thing is before you get a job within two months of your arriving there. After your first month, every 15 days that you don't have a job, they give you a write-up. And that's to force you to get a job. And when I came home, my thing was I wanted a job that was going to set me up for my future life. They wanted you to get any kind of menial job, and then they would charge you 25% of your paycheck, and then they wanted to put the ankle monitor on you and send you home. But you would still have to pay the the 25% of your pay for the next six months because you had a six-month period of uh, court-mandated halfway house time. Not really court-mandated. It was it was the federal system. So what they were literally doing was a guy who was in my bed before I got there, he might have gone home after three months. He still had three months of, of pay. If I had gotten a job my first month and gone home, I would have had five months to pay. The guy coming behind me, he did the same thing, and they're literally charging three or four guys 25% of their pay for the same bed. And I quickly saw it as a racket. Because that was one thing I hated. But to me, the main thing was I wasn't going to wear the ankle bracelet. So when I told them that, I'm not doing that, they said, well, you will be in halfway house for the entire period of time. And they restricted me. I never got a home visit. I never got a weekend pass because I wouldn't follow the rules and put on an ankle bracelet. So my family just um, came to see me like when I, when I went out for a job. And when I eventually got a job, my kids would come on my lunch hour, have lunch with me, or maybe they would um, swing past a job, or, or I would um, meet them somewhere on my way back to the halfway house. But I forfeited any community time because I wouldn't wear the ankle bracelet. So, in, in hindsight, are you, are you glad that you, did, that you took that decision? Yes. I mean, you have to stand by your principles. Mm -hmm. And I saw so many guys who uh, wore the ankle bracelet and subsequently went back to prison because they were somewhere they weren't, they weren't supposed to be. You know, they may deviate or do something. But to me, it was a, a personal choice. Once I came home and I determined to live my life in a way that would benefit myself and my family, I wanted my word and my principles to stand for something. And if I had caved into wearing an ankle bracelet simply to have a greater sense of freedom, then to me that was living by my principles. And it wasn't a greater sense of freedom. Yes, you could go home, but you were more incarcerated in your house wearing the bracelet than I was in the halfway house. Mm -hmm. At least when I went out. 
I would, I had a set period of time. I had like maybe um, a two hour grace period in between my job and coming back to the halfway house. So during that period of time, I could stop, have something to eat, you know, see a friend, I could do whatever. But I was free. They couldn't track me. You know, to me, this simple mechanism of being tracked around the city was just something I was not willing to do. And that six months that I stayed there, it was a difficult time, but it prepared me for the hardships that, that were to come. And when you stand by your principles and small things, it makes it much easier to maintain it when larger issues are coming away. So I have no regrets. Mm. And how do you, do you think you said an, an important example for your family to by, by doing this? Yes. Important Not only my kids? family, but for other guys in the halfway house. Mm -hmm. You know, there were guys who were like, are you crazy? You know, don't you want to go home? Yes, I want to go home, but I want to go home on my own terms. Mm -hmm. I want to go to my family's house, go to work, live, and play with my, and play with my grandkids as a free person. As long as I'm wearing that ankle bracelet, that's the mark of a slave. And mm -hmm. I'm no longer mm -hmm. a slave. Mm -hmm. Because in the federal and the state system, by the 13th Amendment, you are legally a slave. Right. So I wasn't wearing a slave's badge. And that extra six months that I spent incarcerated, it didn't matter to me. What mattered was starting my life on the right track, standing by my principles, and then moving forward into the future. And I think I've done very well for myself. Mm -hmm. so, so what message would you have for other people about... The, uh, about what, what what should we do about these ankle shackles, as I like to call them? What do you think we should? Well, how should we respond to them? I work now with uh, several coalitions: the the two one five cash bail coalition in Philadelphia, where we have successfully pushed for the city of Philadelphia to pass a resolution. We've elected a progressive district attorney, Larry Krasner, who's outlined twenty five crimes that he's not going to ask for cash bail. So there's now a move to end cash bail in the city of Philadelphia, and as we're the largest city in Pennsylvania, that sets the stage for it to be spread across the state. Now, one of the things they're trying to do is bring risk assessment tools and electronic monitoring into that equation. So what they're actually trying to do is to create prisons on the street, and the ankle shackle is a part of that prison. Mm -hmm. And they also, in Philadelphia, they're looking at watches uh, so it's like it looks like a smart watch you know so the stigma of wearing an ankle bracelet isn't there so they're trying to normalize a prison system so you're a guy gets out of prison you're wearing a nice outfit and you got a smart watch you look like a normal citizen but you're not a normal citizen because you're wearing that ankle bracelet now it's just cosmetically something that is more um, acceptable to society and we push back against that we feel like if you're going to say no cash bail, then you are taking a person's word that they will report to a day, day reporting center, they will not do crimes, they'll try to find employment, and they'll move in a progressive manner so when they go to court, they have a record of achievement to show to a judge. An ankle monitor shouldn't be a part of that because then you're coercing a person to do the right thing. You're saying we're going to let you go. If we have no faith in you, we don't trust you, and so we're putting on this electronic bracelet and we will track you. What it also does is it creates another mass incarceration-related mass incarceration-related industry. So you're moving from inside prisons to outside prisons, and then you have the whole uh, companies that are manufacturing. You have to have extra probation officers to monitor. You're building up a 
a system of mass incarceration that is outside of the prison walls, outside of the barbed wire that exists in your community, in your churches, in your shopping centers, and in your home. Now you are incarcerated in your house. So you're really building a carcel society. Thanks to everyone who helped with this week's show. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community.